Hello, and welcome to Friends for Life, a podcast of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod's Life Ministry. We're sharing the stories and insights of real people living out God's love for the people He's created. We hope you'll stick around and be our friends for life. Thanks so much for joining us for episode 20. I'm your host, Stephanie Jabauer, and today we're introducing a new series called The Floor is Yours, where we invite our guest to lead the conversation. Each installment of this series will feature someone with a unique perspective or experience with life issues. They essentially get the mic and take it away. Dr. Donna Harrison is our guest, and we are in for a treat. I have known Dr. Harrison, I believe, for about, let's see, six years now. I was pregnant with her first child at that point, and I met uh, Dr. Harrison in Fort Wayne when I was working with life ministry. And so it's really fun to becoming kind of full circle in this way and getting to touch base with you again, Dr. Harrison. It's like in the six years since I have seen you, you have not aged one bit and you look beautiful. (laughs) Dr. Harrison, would you please introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Dr. Donna Harrison. I'm a board certified obstetrician gynecologist and have been a board certified obstetrician gynecologist for about 35 years. I am currently the uh, Chief Executive Officer of the American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists. We were the largest special interest group within the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology until 2013, at which point the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology discontinued that title. Since 2013, we have tripled our membership. We were about 2,000 and now we're around 7,000. Docs, OBGYNs, mostly OBGYNs across the country. We do have some emergency room docs and some family practice docs and midwives, all of whom work in reproductive health. And what we do is we make available to our membership and to anyone who needs it the uh, peer reviewed literature about what abortion does to women. Because as OBGYNs, we all know that abortion kills our second patient, the preborn child. But what most people don't know is that abortion is also very harmful for women. So I've been the executive director of uh, APLOG uh, since about 2013. Prior to that, I worked as a director of research and uh, public policy. And uh, my interests, my research interests include uh, chemical abortion and how it works. And so I've lectured on that. I've given uh, continuing medical education lectures. I've lectured on that actually across the world and have several publications talking about the effects of abortion on women, especially medical abortion. And thank you so much, uh, Dr. Harrison, for joining us. If, if we may, because in this podcast, we are friends for life. May we call you Donna? Absolutely. Okay, thank you. So Donna, now the floor is yours. Thanks, Stephanie. It's so delightful to be here with you and with Tiffany. It just uh, is it, joyful for me. So you have done a very dangerous thing, and that is give me a microphone. I could go on for hours. So I will try to, I will try to keep this pertinent to what would be interesting to somebody to know what's going on, probably the most important things going on in the life issues. And I think by the time you're hearing this podcast, December 1st will have come and gone. And December 1st was the oral arguments for the case. Dobbs versus Jackson, which is the, the case from Mississippi, which uh, in which the state of Mississippi had banned abortions after 15 weeks. That's after almost uh, after three and a half months. Okay, so 16 weeks is four months, so just shy of four months. The whole baby is easily seen at that point. And what's kind of important is that at that point, the baby's bones are are strong enough that women can feel kicking inside. And that also means that the baby's bones are big enough that you can't just easily do an abortion by putting in a suction catheter and sucking the baby out. That means that the the procedures used for an abortion at that point are, are fairly gruesome. And that's the point at which Mississippi said, no, no, we are not going to allow these babies to be killed at this point or after this point from 15 weeks on. So 15 weeks all the way up until a baby's born, because as you, as you probably know already, Roe versus Wade was the Supreme Court decision way back in 73 that allowed for abortion 
through birth. And most people don't know that there was a second companion decision with Roe issued the same day as Roe called Doe versus Bolton. And Doe versus Bolton said that an abortion can be performed for health reasons. And health means any physical, psychological, social, emotional, or any other reason. So basically, it was the combination of Roe, but mostly Doe, that allowed for abortions to be done all the way up through, the, through birth. And this is the thing that has, that has hindered reasonable discussion about this issue. When we talk about babies that can survive outside the womb, if we have to separate a mom and a baby because carrying the pregnancy threatens the mom's life, and it's up after a point where the baby can survive outside the womb, we do a C-section. It's 10 minutes. We can get that baby out and they can both live. But with an abortion, the purpose of an abortion is never to save a woman's life. The purpose of an abortion, as from the mouth of the abortionist, in other cases, like the partial birth abortion case before the Supreme Court, the purpose of an abortion is to guarantee that that baby is born dead. Okay? And that's the bottom line gruesome truth of it. So at 22 weeks, babies who are born and given appropriate resuscitation have about a 5 to 10% chance of living. Now, 90% won't, but 10% will. So it's possible. And as technology improves, that gestational age where the baby can survive outside the mom is going to be lower and lower. In fact, in animals, they have what's called the, the biobag, where they have, they have allowed a lamb to be taken through pregnancy in an artificial womb. So that time is coming. We know it's and we also know that this point of surviving outside the womb has nothing to do with whether or not there's a human being inside. From the time of sperm egg membrane fusion, that other, otherwise known as fertilization, from that point on, there is a unique human being who has one continuous existence through fetus and neonate and toddler and adolescent and adult and old person. One continuous existence unless somebody intervenes to take his or her life. So we know that there's really not a distinction as far as who's in the womb. What the distinction is, is are we going to extend personhood, the dignity of being one of the human race, which we all know that baby is, are we going to extend that dignity and protection to that preborn child in the womb? That's really what's at issue. But with Dobbs, it's kind of all coming into focus because. The Dobbs case says, for the reasons of maternal health, that is, for, for the mom's sake, we're not going to allow abortion after 15 weeks. Well, why would they do that? It's because abortions after 15 weeks are really dangerous for women. There's an increased rate of death. There's an increased rate of perforating the uterus, that is, poking a baby's bone or an instrument through the uterus because it's big and soft. There's an increased rate of infection. There's an increased long-term risks for her, like preterm birth and subsequent pregnancies, because in order to get a baby out that's 15 weeks or, or greater, you have to really widely dilate her womb, the, the opening of her womb, and that causes damage because wombs aren't meant to be dilated at 15 weeks. So the next time she wants to have a baby, then her womb just may not hold that baby in. So there's an increased risk of very preterm birth. It's 22 to 26 weeks. How many studies have there been? You won't believe this. I mean, I couldn't make this stuff up. There's been 160 studies over five decades that have shown that women who have an abortion are at increased risk of preterm birth and subsequent pregnancies. Not only that, I mean, and it's something that I think every woman should know. Whether you're pro-life or pro-choice, we have an issue of informed consent and women are not being told what abortion does to their body. Another thing abortion does is we know that even if we look at unplanned pregnancies, surprise pregnancies, crisis pregnancies, women who give birth in those circumstances, and we compare those to women who abort, the women who abort are at increased risk of suicide, drug abuse, depression, and, and all of this adverse psychological outcome that comes from losing a baby at any gestational age, it's always traumatic 
but losing a baby in a situation where society says it's your fault, you can't grieve because it's just a blob of tissue. Why are you grieving? When in fact, the woman knows. And, and if, you, if you ever want to really read and weep about something, there are studies that have been done looking at women in abortion clinics and noting how many of them actually rub their wombs and talk to their babies. It's, it's a biochemical, a biological bonding that God wove into the fabric of being a woman. We know when we're caring for life. I mean, we're the place life happens in our body. It's a wonderful thing. So for life to happen here and then to violate that violates the deepest part of who a woman is. And I think we need to really rethink what we as a society think about pregnancy. It's a wonderful time. In fact, that's why I went into OB-GYN because it's great to see women who are caring for their kids in the most intimate way possible. So that is kind of the biological reality of abortion after 15 weeks. It's, it's not a good thing for women. And so state of Mississippi bans it. Well, that ban from the state of Mississippi flies directly in the face of Roe versus Wade, which says a state cannot make any bans in, uh, in the second trimester. Basically, Roe is the Roe is the entity that invented the whole trimester system in the first place. There was no trimester system before Roe. So Roe invented this and said, well, in the second trimester, the state can't make any bans, or they could make some bans based on the health of women, but you know, it always had to have a health exception. Okay, so let's think about this. The state can ban on the basis of helping a woman's health but it has to have an exception for her health. Well, this is crazy because any health exception falls under Doe, which is any physical, psychological, social, familial, or any other reason. So anytime you talk about a health exception, you're talking about the exception that eats up the rule. There is no rule if there's a health exception because Doe says health is anything you want it to be, which means that you can have an abortion for any reason. So... If the Supreme Court decides to uphold Dobbs in any way, then they will immediately have overturned the major holdings in Roe versus Wade. They'll also have overturned the major holdings in a second case that people may not know about, which is Casey. And Casey is the case that said, well, you can make some regulations after the baby's capable of living outside the mom's womb, but you can't make any regulations before the baby's capable of living outside the mom's womb. But Dobbs bans abortions before the baby's capable of living outside the womb. 15 weeks is clearly before the baby can live outside the womb. So if the Supreme Court upholds Dobbs, not only will it overturn the holdings in Roe, it will also overturn the undue burden in Casey. So it will be a revolution in abortion law. Now, the Supreme Court could make up an entirely new uh, rationale for upholding abortion. They could say, well, it's, it's, uh, it's based on the penumbra of the, you know, 14th Amendment. They could, they could say something really ridiculous in the same way that Roe was invented out of thin air and the same way that Casey was invented out of thin air with no really historical precedent. But I'm hopeful that this Supreme Court won't do that. So we are looking at a time when Roe and Doe will fall. Probably. We'll know that more on in June or July when the final decision comes out. But what does that mean? Does that mean abortion's illegal across the country? That's what the other side is raising funds with. Oh, abortion's going to be illegal. No. It means that abortion will finally be returned to the people to decide. The people will have the ability, state by state, to decide what they want. Do we want to be killing babies, preborn babies in the womb? Do we want that? Maybe we don't as a state. Maybe we care enough about women and about children that we're going to stop this. Or maybe like New York or California, we'll decide that autonomy and uh, liberty are the most important things in the world, and so we're going to give the mom the ability to kill her child 
at any point. And New York has already made that very, very clear, even after birth. So it'll be an interesting time. It's not, it's not exactly what the pro-abortion forces would like you to believe. What Dobbs is really about is can the people decide a contentious issue? And can they decide it on what's really scientifically accurate about the pre-born child and best for the mom? So. Now, I have a question, and this I'm sorry if this is a dumb question, but this Dobbs v. Jackson is out of the state of Mississippi. Yeah. But Mississippi isn't the only state who's put restrictions based on gestational age on abortion. And we have the kind of the more recent in our history of Texas with their particular abortion ban. And then I also remember when I lived in Missouri, when I worked in uh, pregnancy centers across the street from abortion clinics in Missouri, we had a shorter amount of time for women to legally uh, get abortions than did Illinois. So a lot of people crossed state lines when they were further along. So how is this case different in Mississippi? Or is this just the first one to make it to the Supreme Court in this way? Mississippi is the first case to make it to the Supreme Court in this way. In the past, what you've had is uh, states who have banned a certain procedure called the partial birth abortion procedure, which you you know was was banned. And that's uh, a procedure where the baby is the baby's body is delivered, the baby's head is still inside the mom's womb, and then the uh, abortionist decompresses the head and uh, kills the baby in the process. So that procedure was banned by the Supreme Court based on the brutality of that the procedure. It's, it's horrible. It's infanticide. It's infanticide, you know, six inches away from birth. It's crazy. But we've not, ha- and we've had other states try to ban the D&E procedure, which is where the baby's pulled apart piece by piece. That's brutal. But this is the first case to make it to the Supreme Court where a state, well, other than Texas, which which sort of slipped in there somehow, the first case um, where the state has said, we're not, we're going to ban it 15 weeks or above. The Texas case is a little bit different in that it's, uh, it, 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 it has some legal nuances that I'm not really very good to to talk about. It has something to do with the enforcement measure. So you'd have to have somebody who is a little better in the legal terminology than I am. So it's a little bit different than the state banning. It's not exactly a state ban. And it gets its name Dobbs v. Jackson from my understanding, Dobbs, who's the health officer of Mississippi at the time. And then Jackson, which is a women's health organization, Jackson Women's Health Organization in Mississippi. Is that correct? It's an abortion clinic. Yeah. Okay. Women's health is a euphemism in this case for abortion. So then you had mentioned in June or July is likely when the case would be decided. And how do you see that going just on a very practical level of if, if state by state gets to have the choice, you know, what, what are the possible outcomes that you foresee, both maybe, of course, the positives, but then also some of the things that make that a little extra dicey as well? I mean, I can just foresee people, again, moving from state to state to, you know, to New York or California to have their abortion procedure if they live in a current state where they can't. So how would that be helpful for, for our cause? Well, I think let's talk about the pro side of it. Yes. So I think <laughs> what this will do is it will cause a real discussion in each state about what is abortion and why are we doing this? We don't need abortion. Women don't need abortion to have careers. I, I've been pregnant nine times. I have five children. I don't need abortion to be a successful professional woman, as do most other successful professional women. So we don't need it for that reason. It's certainly not helping women. It, it has increased the, risk, uh, uh, the rate of preterm birth across the country. There are millions of children who've been affected by preterm birth being born prematurely specifically as a result of their mom having an abortion. It's increased the rate of breast cancer in this country. That's not all abortion and it's not all breast cancer. But what it is is that 
in going from uh, uh, when a woman has never been pregnant and she becomes pregnant for the first time, her breast undergoes a rapid development. It's that breast tenderness we all know about and experience. And that is a rapid growth of breast tissue, but it's immature breast tissue. It's type one and two breast tissue. 99% of breast cancers arise from type one and two breast tissue. So it isn't until that breast tissue can make milk that it's permanently cancer resistant because milk producing breast tissue never turns into cancer. So the most important factor in a woman's life for whether or not she's at, at high risk for cancer is how early did she have a term pregnancy? How early did she take that immature breast tissue and turn it into milk producing tissue? That's the biggest risk factor. So you can see if a woman aborts in her teen years and then delays childbearing until she's 30, she's got a whole bunch of immature breast tissue, wait, immature cancer susceptible breast tissue waiting for that second hit to turn into cancer. And so what we've seen is parallel to the increase in abortion in this country, we've had an increase in breast cancer rate. So these kinds of things, we, don't, we as women don't need that. What we need is good medical care. We need excellent medical care and we need excellent medical care for everybody, regardless of their, their income, regardless of their uh, of any characteristic, we need excellent medical care. And that's what Applin, my association, I'm part of the American Association of Pro-Life OBGYNs. I'm the executive director. And we're 7,000 OBGYNs across the country. We should be 46,000 OBGYNs across the country because the studies have shown that 93% of OBGYNs do not do abortion. 93%. It's only 7% of OBGYNs that do abortion. And a lot of the abortionists are not OB-GYNs. But as OB-GYNs, we know we've got two patients and we take care of both patients. So what a woman needs is she needs excellent medical care. She doesn't need pressure to kill her baby. And unfortunately, in my experience and in talking with women who have aborted, most of them say they were free to make any choice they wanted as long as they aborted. Okay? They were pressure from parents, pressure from boyfriends, pressure from work, pressure from society in general. Why are we doing this to women? It is our privilege and honor to bring in, to be the place where life happens for the next generation. It's a wonderful thing that we do. So we should be supported by society to bring in the next generation. We shouldn't have to fight tooth and nail for our children. It should be something that is welcomed in our society. And I think that's one of the things that having the, the ability to discuss this on a state-by-state -state basis will really help because we'll start to think about these things as a people. Think through them intelligently and not just hide behind, you know, uh, politicizing this issue to the point where we've stopped thinking about what it's actually doing to women. Hmm. Well. So then walk me through, Dr. Harrison, how does this, how does this case move through time if it starts in december and you know the time of this airing will be after that what what happens in between december and then you know june july when this decision comes out well as far <laughs> as far as i understand the great mystery behind the curtain is that the judges <laughs> deliberate and <laughs> they collect other evidence and they think about it and they talk about it and then they announce it in june or july so beyond that, you would have to have a lawyer tell you the intricacies of why it takes six months or seven months for the Supreme Court to make a decision on what seems to me a pretty, pretty clear-cut, obvious case. Hmm. And, and especially because most lawyers that I've talked to, even on the other side of the debate, you know, pro-life, pro-choice lawyers have admitted that Roe was created out of thin air. There's no legal precedent for Roe. There's no place in the Constitution that says a woman has a right to kill her preborn child. It's and it's inconsistent with other laws that we have, like the homicide laws. You know, if you if you shoot and kill a pregnant woman, then you it's a double homicide because you've just killed her child too. So the law recognizes that there's a second child inside for purposes of homicide. They also recognize for purposes of inheritance, you know, it, uh, children in the womb can inherit. So 
there's really uh, Roe is on a collision course with itself. So I and not only that, but the science on which it was based is what forty five years old before ultrasound, before we had all of this wonderful technology. So we even operate on babies in the world. <laughs> There's no question that we have a second patient there. And you know, when we operate on babies in the womb, that baby gets a separate anesthesia because the anesthesia given to the mom, baby needs a separate anesthesia. So we treat that baby like a patient. Mm. And, and that's done too. And that wasn't present in 1973. So there's been all this scientific and medical progress and it's just completely inconsistent with a decision like Roe. So it's time that the science really catches up and, and informs our laws. And this is a wonderful opportunity for that to happen. And I'm hoping that the Supreme Court sees that now's the time. Yeah. And now the, you know, kind of environment of our current Supreme Court, if you're pretty confident that, that this will, you know, the final decision will come down to, to states, do we have a majority being pro-life justices? Yes, I am. I am not a lawyer. I'll tell you, I I cannot <laughs> predict what the Supreme Court's going to do. I can only hope that they will use their heads and and their their brains and do the right thing here. Because what's what's right for women and their preborn children it's it's glaringly obvious. And uh, but I can't I can't predict what they'll do. But I do know that this that we as a a, a people of faith and people who are who care about this human being that God created in the womb, that we should be informing ourselves. We should be ready to speak. We should be ready to go to our local chamber of commerce. We should be ready to go to the state, the state house and testify on bills. And that is something that my organization, the American Association of Pro-Life OBGYNs, can help you with. So if you go to our website, which is just A-A-P-L-O-G, so it's A-plog. We used to say app-log, but now everybody spells app-A-P-P, so it completely blew yeah. our, our acronym, but it's A-A-P-L-O-G.org. Under the tab called Resources, you will find a phenomenal amount of information on different things like fetal pain and maternal mortality and preterm birth and psychological complications which we have compiled over the last 25 years from the medical literature. And, and it's helpful and it will allow you the ability to articulate an evidence-based defense for both the mother and her unborn child. And we, we provide that for our membership because we wanna equip especially medical practitioners, medical professionals to speak out about this issue. We know what's going on. That's that's why most OBGYNs don't do abortions because they know full well there's another there's another person in there. But we want to also equip anyone who's interested in testifying with this, you know, with this kind of just fact-based information. Uh, the truth is on our side. So while the other side makes mouth about following the science, we would really like them to follow the science, follow the science all the way to the fact that fetuses from eight weeks on can feel pain. Follow the science all the way to the fact that abortion hurts women. Follow the science all the way to the fact that babies at, at and after 22 weeks have survived outside the womb. And what does that mean for the 24-week abortion? So let's follow the science. Let's do that. Let's take, take up that, that thought and really look at what is the issue we're talking about. We're talking about destroying a human being who is alive and growing inside a woman. Is that really what we want to do? Is that really helping women? Let's talk about this. And, and I think it will be helpful and a breath of fresh air to have that conversation in each state. Yeah, uh, I agree. And I, I think one of the, the charges we have as, as listeners hearing this from you is to keep this in prayer, to be praying for all lawmakers, both in our own state and then on a national level, especially the justices in the Supreme Court who will be hearing this case and on a really fundamental level, I think we pray for wisdom for them and guidance to not only uphold the laws of our nation as it was founded, but also the laws of 
God and the created order. And so we can have permission as people of God to pray boldly before the Lord, knowing that he hears our prayers and, um, uh, you know, judges and also has mercy on us. So that is something we can very actively be doing as we wait for June or July yeah. for that for that to come in. And now, Donna, you are a faithful member of a LCMS congregation in Michigan. How uh, else do you see? We go to church at uh, Pastor Richard Stuckwich's church in South Bend. So okay. I, so while I live in Michigan, I worship in Indiana. So it's a, it's a border thing. Okay. So to say, I read your bio and it stuck out to me that you live in Michigan because I am from Michigan. And so I thought that was just a hitting and out of the park kind of thing that you went to church in Michigan. (laughs) Where are you you from in Michigan? Traverse City, Michigan. Uh, Cherry Festival. Yes, that's right. That's right. We've been there a lot. So it's wonderful. Well, we just we actually just vacationed this past summer in the southwestern part of Michigan, and that area as well is gorgeous, oh, and the sunsets are unremarkable. That, that's um, where I live, in the southwest Michigan. Yeah. Well, you are very blessed to be in God's country there, too. But you, go, you attend church then in um, South Bend, Indiana, which really is just over the, over the border there. So how do you, as a, a church member— um, see this kind of thing through a biblical lens as well. And you mentioned a lot of following the science and the science speaks for itself in the development of a child in the womb and also the role of a mother and how she is affected by pregnancy, but then also abortion if that's what she she chooses. So what's the biblical lens that we that we see all of this through and, and how can we take action? Well, I think if if someone believes the scriptures uh, to be God's word, God has said he loves each one of us, that he created us in our mother's womb. He didn't ensoul us at day 14. He created us. If If we look at that, if we really believe that children are a gift from God, if we really believe that God instituted this wonderful thing called marriage to uh, provide a solid, secure, emotionally secure place for both the husband and the wife and their children, then I, I think we need to look at what we're doing and look at what we're saying is okay. Is it really okay to have sex outside of marriage? Really? Is that is that scripturally upheld? <laughs> I don't think so. And when you look at abortion, abortion, abortion stands on four legs. Okay? In, in this in this culture, the first leg that abortion stands on is well, it's just a blob of tissue. But with ultrasound, nobody believes that anymore because it's it's no more a blob of tissue than I'm a blob of tissue. Now sometimes I do feel like a blob of tissue at the end of the workday. <laughs> But <laughs> I'm no more a blob of tissue than that freeborn child. So uh, that's kind of fallen off, okay? The second leg is th- this lie that abortion is good for women, that we need abortion. And we don't. We don't need abortion. We don't need to have our the, the thing that is most close and personal to our heart cut out because it's convenient for somebody else. The third problem. And you'll hear this so much right now in this debate. The third problem is we don't really want those kind of people reproducing, which is why abortion clinics are located predominantly in Black and Hispanic neighborhoods. Margaret Sanger was a eugenicist. She wanted to get rid of the Black population. And she made no bones about it. So Planned Parenthood has carried on her legacy. She founded Planned Parenthood. It was first the American Eugenic Society, and then it became Planned Parenthood. So Planned Parenthood has not lost sight of Margaret Sanger's original intentions, and that is to reduce the population that they don't like. That's a problem because that's where the money comes for the abortion industry. And what you'll hear is horrific things like, well, these moms are just going to have more poor babies. What a horrendous, what a horrendous thing to say about God's people. 
about the people that he created and he loved and that bear his image. I mean, just think about the horrendousness of that. And then the fourth problem, the fourth leg, and this is where the church is going to have to stand up. The fourth leg is if he can walk away, I can walk away. So sex, unfortunately, for for many men is a five-minute commitment. And for a woman, it's a 20-year commitment. So until we turn the hearts of the fathers toward their children, then I think we're going to have a problem. And the only organization that can do that is the church. Because certainly uh, my organization, the American Association of Pro-Life OBGYNs, we're, we're non-sectarian. We, we take people of any faith uh, who stand for the science, to stand for excellent medical care for both of our patients, both the mother and her preborn child. So we can't really address that issue, that issue of he can walk away, I can walk away. That's a catechesis issue. Mm-hmm. And I want to tell you some really stat- sad statistics for women that go to church once a week or less, women that go to church once a week are no different than the general population in their abortion rate. Okay, so we, so yeah, that's real sobering. Once a week, so most people will. On Sunday. On Sunday. If you look at at women who go to church on Sunday Mm -hmm. and you compare just just once a week, not twice a week, yeah. No no midweek catechesis, okay? (laughs) Okay, I see. Once a week on Sunday, and you compare that, you compare the abortion rate in that group with the abortion rate in the general population, there's no difference. So the only difference is that is in people that attend more than once a week. Now, why is that? If we really believe what we say we believe about God being our creator and about each human being, every human being bearing his image, there should be a difference. Okay. So I think that's something that the church needs to, to think about. And there's something else the church needs to think about, too. If you look at statistics for when women make the decision to abort, they usually make the decision to abort within 48 hours of getting a positive pregnancy test. And they wow. carry out that decision within a week. In that week, she may attend church once. Who's she going to talk to? Who is she going to talk to? Is she going to talk to the pastor who's really, really busy and maybe not? And, you know, that's a problem. We need to identify in each of our churches, we need to publicly identify some female, some older female who's respected, who can keep her mouth shut, who isn't a gossip, and who can give these girls good counsel. And that needs to be like known in the church. Hey, if you have a problem, Mary Smith is the one to talk to. She knows how to keep her mouth shut. She's godly. I mean, it is a wonderful role for a deaconess, but it's got to be someone that these girls can trust and someone who can give good counsel. And the other thing that has to flood our churches is an understanding, a grace-filled understanding that if she has been coerced or if she's made the, the mistake of taking the first pill of the abortion pill regimen, that there's hope. If she gets to a doctor who will give her progesterone, she can, she can help the chances that that baby will survive. It's not 100%, but it'll take the chances of that baby surviving from 25% to 68%. But she has to know about this, and she has to get the progesterone within 72 hours of taking the mifeprex. Okay? So that's the kind of thing we should, we should be looking in our parishes to say, Who's our doctor in our parish that's going to make sure that this happens for this girl? Who's the woman she can talk to that can make that happen? And, and I think it's a, an important responsibility because when Roe falls, and, and it very likely may fall with this Dobbs case, when it falls, the abortion industry is already working on their backup plan, and that is complete willy-nilly access to the abortion drugs. And the way they're doing it right now, there's over 70 different websites where you can order the abortion drugs online. No doctor's prescription, no visit. Uh, there's, a, there's a TikTok video uh, by a guy named Joe Baca. I don't know Joe Baca, but he talks about, he, he shows this pill and he says, these are the drugs that I bought online. Nobody asked my age, my sex, my 
uh, date of pregnancy and I bought it with a gift card. And he just, he's typifying the problem, which is the abortion industry is so entrenched in reducing the population that they are willing to sacrifice women's lives because these women have no medical care when they get this online. They, they don't know if they have a pregnancy in their tube or in their uterus. Okay, you take the abortion pill when you have a pregnancy in your tube and you start bleeding and cramping, which is a sign of a rupturing ectopic pregnancy. And then you call the abortion clinic, I'm bleeding and cramping. They say, honey, everybody bleeds and cramps. Just sit down and take a Tylenol and call me in the morning. And she dies. She dies because the tube ruptures and she bleeds to death. I actually reviewed the adverse event reports that were sent to the FDA after the use of this drug, after they approved the drug. And there's been several women who that exactly happened. They were told to just, honey, sit down. It's not a problem. Just, just lay down, call us later. And they died. They died in the way to the, in the, way to the hospital and the ambulance because they bled to death. So not only that, <laughs> you want to make it worse. Women who take this drug and they're further along than they think they are, if they're past 13 weeks, they have a 30 to 40% chance, one out of three or more, that they will have to have emergency surgery to stop the hemorrhaging. Wow. But the abortion industry doesn't care. They don't care how high the pile of dead bodies is so long as they profit from abortion. And you have to know, Planned Parenthood is the one who was given the rights to manufacture and distribute this drug. They created a shell company, Danco, but the, the rights to manufacture and distribute, i.e. the money that comes in, flows right back into the abortion industry. So this is not about caring about women. Abortion is about abusing women, and it's about population control. And I think we have to wake up and look at that because as, as people of faith, we say every human being bears the image of God. We don't, we don't want anybody to be killed. That, that's not what we're about as people of faith. So there's just a lot of things I think the church needs to be aware of what's going on so that we can actually make a difference. So that the next time women are polled uh, about their, you know, their abortion history, that, that women who go to church will be statistically different than women who don't. You know, that, that we know within, within the body of Christ, we care for our own. And caring for our own includes that preborn child in the womb. It includes our, our aging family members. We care for our own. And that's, I mean, isn't that the hallmark of Christianity? They'll know us by our love. Mm -hmm. So we need to be known by our love, which is big enough love to embrace preborn children. And, and I would love to see the LCMS, you know, really, really bring that into fruition in their congregations. Yes. Yes. Amen. Let it be so. And even so, we lament the devastatingly large amount of life that has been lost since, since Roe to abortion. And 62 million. 62 million. million human beings. And that's what's documented. Yeah. And that's what's documented. You're right. That's what's yeah. documented. 62 million human beings come quickly, Lord Jesus. And also I pray that he gives us strength to fight this battle, which in my opinion, but I would imagine in your opinion also is the biggest battle of our age in defending the life of a human being who is yet to be born. And as the psalmist talks about in Psalm 139, he knit us together in our mother's womb. And as you had said, he... <laughs> He doesn't just go poof, it's there. He knits, he carefully crafts, right. and he creates. He creates right. with tender care. And then not only that, but my guest last last episode, Dr. Kleinig, talks about how not only did God make us, but then once we were born, he remade us through baptism. And because of his son, Jesus, we are able to have the inheritance that he himself has as a son of God. Yeah. And, and we rely on, of course, the, the work of the Holy Spirit as well to, um, 
to care for our current neighbors and to care for our own bodies and the fellowship of believers too, to be in support of young moms who find themselves in these situations where they have an unplanned pregnancy or a surprise pregnancy. Um, And we also, as a church, come um, ready with forgiveness to deliver these women who have, like you had said, made the mistake of having an abortion already, that Christ's forgiveness is for them as well. And that's really important because all of us have made mistakes. We've all done things. And the the beautiful promise of the gospel is that we are remade, that, that he he remakes us. Mm-hmm. And and I think it's not just the women. Think about the men. Think about the guys who thought sex was just a really fun thing to do on the weekend. And then their first child is killed. Okay. There, there's a really, there's something very bitter in in knowing that you took something so beautiful and so sacred and you were part of the loss. You, you were part of not caring, not doing the God-given thing that you could have and should have done. And that, that also needs forgiveness and it, it, it needs embracing. But I think the church really needs to do better with prevention. We need to do better with our attitude toward marriage itself. I mean, God instituted marriage for a really good reason for us and for our children. And that is not supposed to be taken lightly. And the, the, the one flesh union, it happens. I mean, whether you get married or not, you become one flesh when, when you have intercourse. And it's not just when you conceive. It turns out that, <laughs> it turns out that the, there are cells from the men from, from uh, the person you have uh, sex with, which actually reside in your body, stem cells. It's called microchimerism. And, and those, so the one flesh union's real. And that one flesh union should be reserved for a promise of lifelong faithfulness. And that needs to be, that needs to be expected from our kids. I'm not saying they won't mess up every once in a while. Okay. But the expectation should be this is what sex is about, and this is why it's about, and this is what it means to offer your body as a living sacrifice, and this is what it means to flee sexual immorality, and, and to really talk about what Scripture says a whole lot about sexual faithfulness and about sexual immorality, and this is part of being a Christian. Yeah, so Christianity isn't for wimps, okay? So we exercise self-control, yeah? So marriage is a good thing, yeah? And I see this happening in two different ways. One, there is, I, I have seen patients of mine, uh, parents of patients, who have had the expectation that their daughter isn't going to get married until she's through college, through grad school, and has established herself in a career. That makes her about 38 to 40. Okay. Yeah. So she's got a boyfriend whom she loves. And he loves her, and they're supposed to be sexually abstinent for 22 years. Uh, I don't think so. Okay, so so we set up this cultural expectation that makes it impossible for a a, a couple who God has brought together to to be sexually faithful. When what the parents could have done is said, "Yeah, get married. We'll help you through this. We'll help you through." You know, I mean, there's a way in which we have to. We we need to examine our attitude toward marriage and children, which has unfortunately copied a lot of the attitude in society. And I'll give you an example from my own life. I, I've been pregnant nine times. I've had five children. Well, actually six. I've got four in heaven. But during those times, the first baby was celebrated. Oh, yeah, great. Donna, I'm so glad you're pregnant. Second baby is like, oh, glad you're pregnant. The third baby is like, don't you know how to stop that? Hmm. And I got so tired of it. I finally said, yeah, you want me to tell you about it? <laughs> want, me, want me to tell you how I got pregnant? <laughs> I, I'm just, I, because the attitude toward family is so negative and it's negative in our churches. And I think we really need to do some introspection about what we believe about the gift of God. Every human being is a gift. Why would we say no to a gift from God? And why would we, why would we look funny at the person who's having 
three or four children when they're receiving joyfully the gifts that God's given them. You know, we should be rejoicing with them because we we need each other and 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 we need these children that God has created and put in our life. We 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 need them and we need to be a a, a church that is known for its love of every person that God brings in into our into a relationship with us as a neighbor. Mm-hmm. So I, I think I would love to see the LCMS kind of rethink this whole attitude toward marriage and children. And and I don't think it should be normative that that we expect our children to be in intimate sexual relationships outside of marriage. Because any intimate sexual relationship can result in God's gift of another person. So if you're not prepared to do right by God's gift of another person, why are you in a sexual relationship? You know, it, it's it's a kind of a no-brainer. Yeah. Um, so I, I just think I would love to see some more dialogue about about that within the churches and really some introspect about how, how we message our, our attitude toward family and children. Yeah, I agree. And you know who's uh, great at that job? <laughs> it is that? Deaconess Tiffany Manor. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> she great. She's been in that position for, you know, I, I think actually going on a year and a half, two years now. And the resources coming out of life ministry and the the message um, yeah. that is being proclaimed that children are a gift, that family is the way that God instituted and designed it, is very good. It, yeah. A very joyful experience, a very good relationship. And so I applaud Life Ministry for um, putting out resources that are helping the church have these conversations and the, um, you know, the dialogue in which to have them too and the way to speak about these things. And we can do better and we are going to do better because we have this podcast and we hope to have you on again (laughs) uh, to talk about other things because you are, I could listen to you all day. I really do think so. So. You're very wise and you bring a lot of insight to this conversation just with your own experience and, of course, with your professional, you know, accolades as well. Thank you so much, Donna, for joining us today. Yeah, you're welcome, Stephanie. Thanks for having me. And thanks to our listeners, too, for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review. And don't forget to click the follow or subscribe button on your app so you don't miss out on any upcoming episodes. New episodes drop twice each month. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram as Friends for Life LCMS. And you can reach out to us via email at friendsforlife at lcms.org. We want to hear from you about what you want to hear about when it comes to issues of life. Thanks for joining us. Friends for Life is a podcast that introduces listeners to life issues by introducing them to friends who stand for life. 